You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, thanks for uh, listening today. We are joined by Corinne Murray, the co-founder and chief strategist of Purposeful Intent. Corinne, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. I know Simon has been your champion with trying to get you out in the world and what better stage than the Fully Occupied show. My one man hype hype man. Yeah. My one person hype team. Ultimate yes man. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, cool. So give us your backstory. Like, what are you you doing today? What have you done in the past? Tell us us what your purpose uh, in the world is. Yeah. Uh, so the very condensed version is from college where I studied religious philosophy, which, you know, is a applicable. very logical thing, super applicable. Although like I can now argue what I do now makes a ton of sense. Me in college describing to my parents that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> took some doing and some assistance from some professors who I'm deeply grat- grateful to. But so from there I started at CBRE, I was in the marketing group. I then moved on to a leasing agents team. I basically built my own wheel program for anyone that's in the industry and knows CBRE at all. It's basically just an apprenticeship program. I basically did my own DIY version of it. I then went to work on transactions and uh, mergers and acquisitions consulting or contract work with American Express. And that was basically like doing the real estate divorcing of the assets when we were divesting from global business travel. Uh, So that was really fun, like saw the whole cross section of an organization and how everything plays together. From there, moved in-house at Amex. I ran the workplace program there. And that was really where I got my teeth into user experience in the built environment and understanding, you know, product think. From there, I moved to Gensler very briefly where I was doing change management exercises mostly. And then I had a two-year tour at WeWork through the best of times in the world. Right, exactly. <laughs> Through the best of times and the worst of times. And, you know, say what we will about the organization. It was one of the, you know, most, it was the, one of the most well-timed rocket ships I could have got on myself for my career and just the depth of my thinking and just, you know, how much I was able to grow into my own practice. Said goodbye in November of 2019 with a lot of, lot of other people And then I went to RXR, which is a commercial landlord here in New York City. I was going to try and uh, apply a lot of the learnings from WeWork into the supply side of the business. Obviously, then COVID hit. uh, We repositioned to be more programming and experiential as opposed to design-based. So I built out the community team there and then was really trying to help us understand how we can transition our buildings into more shared amenities. That's going to be a very, very long road. And I don't envy being on the landlord side. Like that's a really rough stymied position to be in between lenders and users who want vastly, vastly different things. And then from there, I joined Impec in October of 2021. I built out this product called Effectiveness as a Service, which is getting some new life uh, through Purposeful Intent, which was an offshoot that Simon and I created 
through Impact Group, really just trying to meet a need in that most of the events and conferencing that exists in our universe is very driven towards vendors. And I mean, even I believe like you guys would be able to confirm that or affirm like, yeah, that's, that's how our industry is set up is that it's fueled by sponsor and like vendor dollars and yep. occupiers intentionally or unintentionally always sort of feel like they are being sold to. Yeah. Or like they feel like they are being preyed upon because like they are in the minority. Yep. And so that's always like having been on that side and having experienced it firsthand, it's not fun, but you know, there's a way to satisfy both. There's a way to create an environment where heads of real estate or people on real estate and workplace teams can come together and just voice what's working for them, voice what is not, and just voice, these are the things we're worried about. These are what we're trying to design against and just have it sit there, have it really, I mean, to be tongue in cheek about it, it's sort of like group therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, everyone is coursing through these problems. You know, everyone's at a little bit of a different phase of their journey, but we're just in a moment where we need a reprieve to talk. And, you know, Occupier has been a sponsor of our events. We've got a lot of really great support from the teams who understand and see the value in this by knowing that right now the answer is to just take a step back and be led by the people who are coming to us with problems or just the people who are voicing the problems, which I think isn't necessarily unique, but it is, I think, a refreshing experience for a lot of people on the corporate side of our industry. And I think one that especially in a moment where we are in a test bed, everything feels chaotic. Not every question that's raised needs to then be a moment of selling. It could really just be a moment of listening. Um, And so really that was the intent with which purposeful intent was established of how do we create these forums and still have strong relationships on the supplier and service provider and occupier side. And out of that, initially, I think that we were maybe a bit short-sighted on thinking that there would be consulting that comes out of this. Uh, but there's, there is because I am the lead facilitator for most of these events. And so then that means that this is softer sell business development for us and our, you know, our friends in the industry. So it's been a very happy accident for this to have transpired as quickly and as, you know, largely as it has so far. And all I can hope for is continued momentum. Yeah. Now, I think you guys are onto something because we've obviously attended an event and it was a totally different experience than your typical vendor has a booth, flag people down, <laughs> throw some yeah. swag at them, try to get them to yeah. look at your demo screen, which, you know, there's a place for that. I get it. Like, totally. There are certain Yeah, and we're not trying to replace that. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. But I think the happy accident that you talked about, which is there's going to be co- consulting work that comes out of this. It's because people are are taking a deep breath and having conversations about problems that they're trying to solve. And yeah. hopefully through those conversations in group therapy, you can identify what your <laughs> problems are and say, okay, well, now I want to figure out how to solve that problem and who better to do it than the people I was talking with about it. Exactly. Because there could be expertise out of those conversations that you know could be shared among the group. Yeah, um, And even to continue that like group ther- therapy narrative even further, I think a lot of what our industry is used to, and, you know, maybe, maybe you see some of this too, is a lot of times organizations don't quite know why they're buying a product or buying a service. They just think that it's going to be, you know, their savior. It's going to be the silver bullet that solves everything that ails them when really 
anyone who it, like spends their time seriously entrenched in this world knows that that doesn't exist. And so, you know, what I am optimistic about is that folks are starting to see that the problems we are facing aren't the problems that need fixing. There's like, it's like the, the root cause that's maybe about three or four layers beneath the surface that take time and patience and, you know, not jumping the gun at trying to solve. Um, And that is not something that a very linear and project-based and like transaction-driven industry is, uh, I think, naturally inclined to do. So there's a lot of sort of behavior deprogramming that needs to happen. Yeah, I think um, just for the listeners here, the the world that Corinne is talking about is the, the corporate real estate world, right? We're talking about corporate occupiers, people that have a business, then they provide space, places to work, or maybe they don't provide space anymore, yeah. <laughs> but we're Depending talking about who you are. companies that have employees. That's, that's who we're talking about. So yep. um, you're right in the middle of like a lot of the most well-known companies in the world you guys work with and talk to, like you just said that there's the problem is actually buried like three or four levels deeper than this kind of shiny object topic that everybody's talking about right now which is like the existence of an office or the death of the office Mm -hmm. or hybrid or remote or all i mean yes we're in a moment of time where these are like headlines and everybody's got an opinion and a point of view on it but i guess my question is just like what is the root problem that everyone's trying to solve like what what is that question that people are asking themselves right now yeah i i think i think because we are in the real estate world Every, the majority of people see the problem through the lens of space. But the problem is the way in which we work have, has changed and we haven't yet figured out what those new rhythms and patterns are. And we also don't know where those new rhythms and patterns happen most successfully. So we're still in a moment of, you know, we've got some like emerging trends that might be able to point us in a certain direction of what works and what doesn't. But at the end of the day, the problem that companies are trying to solve for are keeping their employees at their organization. It is more expensive than ever to lose an employee because the stakes are higher in terms of getting someone to come in because they're going to demand a stronger package. They're going to demand more flexibility. And unless organizations are ready for that, they're going to have open roles that stay open for a long time. And then I want to say it was in the New Yorker, if not maybe New York Magazine. Um, I'm going to be bad up with my referencing, but there is this article, like a think piece that talked about the expanding role, the expanding job. And it basically was hitting at, you know, people are absorbing the work of other people as they leave. And it's never leaving them again because it's taking a long time to backfill where those people are coming, like backfill the people who left. So there's this really long tail. Is this the great um, resignation? Is that the result of uh, whatever that term means? Yes. I like to think of the great resignation as the great reprioritization. Like employees have more intelligence and more negotiating power than we've seen potentially in our lifetimes. And they're being choosy. They're being exceptionally choosy about where they go to. You know, more and more people are saying, even though this is a really great salary package and all this kind of stuff, I'm getting hints that this is an organization where, you know, 50 hours a week is 
you know, a light week. And that's a lot, you know, for certain people that seems fine. I, in my post we work days have very much been diligent about being mindful of when my t- when the, the time I spend per week goes above 50 because that's usually when I start to have the wheels fall off um, and I don't feel you know grounded or centered in what I need to be doing just as a person let alone the quality of my work and you know the relationships that I have and things like that so I think that the great resignation or like the great reprioritization which then leads to people leaving their jobs for something else, this is the tail end or like this is the collateral damage from like mass departures. Yeah. People that stay get more work <laughs> because other people and it, left yeah. and they went and found the situation that's better for them, whether that has any, anything to do with an office or not. They're Correct. looking at, okay, so are we witnessing the death of the job title workplace strategist? Because mm. the the connotation of workplace strategy is I have space. I need to design that space so people can work in it most efficiently use it. We want as many people in the office as possible for these purposes. So my job as a workplace strategist is to solve for the space. Whereas the problems that people are facing or companies are facing is less about how do we make the space work for people? How do we make the experience work for people? Yeah, it's a, I, it's a very fair question, and it's a little bit of a yes and a no. I've been noticing more and more facilities management roles being rebranded as workplace, which in the way that you're describing and in the way that things have been evolving, that does make sense. Their KPIs, their team responsibilities are around the built space. The term workplace strategist, I don't think ever fully was accurate. Because there's a world in which a design strategist is that person who translates, these are the, the features and, you know, furniture and fixtures that need to be in the space. And they partner with like architecture and, and design teams to make sure that it all fits and it makes sense. And it's up to whatever local codes are needed, et cetera. Workplace has always been this like enormous catch-all for employee experience, change management, doing the research and uh, like the research and development around, you know, basically verifying or validating the design hunches that design teams create. The problem with that is like design strategy, architecture design, those happen in agency frameworks who then are outsourced to their clients. Those like genuine workplace strategists are the ones who sit inside, but there's no real true feedback loop of like all the insights that over years. So let's, you know, traditionally, and I hope that this is one thing that takes a very radical change in the next several years, design happens and then it stays that way for at least seven to 10 years, because that's how long on like a company's accounting sheet, they will decommission assets or they will sort of like amortize the value of an asset over usually a seven-year schedule but what that then does is completely hamstrings a workplace in either the facilities management standpoint or a workplace strategist someone who's trying to focus on the user experience in that environment and that connection that an employee makes to their relationship with the organization itself they get hamstrung because there's only so much that can be done those assets are still being scheduled to for use 
And so then that would mean like, you know, those long amortization schedules get in the way of continuous improvement and, you know, evolving space as we learn, hey, our business model as like, you know, the product team within a, a large organization has completely pivoted. You know, we actually don't have that many engineers that are in the office because we polled and nine out of 10 of them would rather just be at home and come in for demo days and et cetera, et cetera. So then that would that would then mean the built environment could or should be adapted to those needs. Traditional standards would make that pretty challenging. And I'm not saying that it's impossible, but it, it is something that is a big hurdle that we will need to collectively overcome. And I go off on this tangent to say most employees can't, because they don't know, they can't separate out, I'm having a bad experience in my space. And so therefore I'm going to go to the real estate team and, you know, work with them. They can't often divorce that from, this is how my company values me and how my company values my work. And there could be an argument for why should it be divorced? You know, not every, like the workplace shouldn't be the only beacon of a company's culture, especially now in a pandemic where, you know, a lot of companies have gone remote. A lot of companies are figuring out what hybrid means. uh, And they're still trying to figure out how do we keep engagement strong? How do we make sure that our brand and our culture permeates beyond the four walls that we are managing? But it still doesn't take away the potency of a really well-operated and user-centric environment. Yeah, I can see the conundrum that you're speaking of, which is if you were to try to optimize or solve for every employee's best work, mm-hmm. you would have hundreds, thousands of different iterations of how we need to accommodate this employee, right? Like, yeah. So if you, if you were just picking the, hey, we're never going back to an office mode and decided we're just going to set every employee up to do their best work, no matter what that is, mm-hmm. then you run into just almost like an unwieldy problem to constantly be iterating yeah. on and solving, right? Whereas if you were to not divorce those two things, which is the space and the employee experience and be able to provide some sort of, like you said, beacon, or at least just a through line through which a company is able to you know, tether that ex- employee experience, right. then then you have a much more manageable decision-making framework when you're going through how, how do we actually grow? How do we downsize? How do we get into new markets? But yeah. it's interesting you bring up the finance piece because the seven-year amortization schedule is impossible to It's to no joke. Because every company yeah. needs to basically pay taxes and report to their investors and depreciate assets. And you see that in our world because we deal with leases, right? And yeah. that's a whole other element that you have to bring into this. It's like you're depreciating yeah. furniture, copiers, fax machines, all of this equipment that is in four walls of the space. But then you have this contract between the corporation and the landlord, which also has a depreciation schedule and an amortization schedule to it as well. So yep. you don't want to swing too hard into that hard asset world because then you're tied up way too, yeah. way too much with overhead and depreciating assets when your employees are saying, I don't even like the stuff that you gave us. Right. So you, yeah. there's this impossible balance to like, to solve for, but and that's, that's where that yeah. higher order, we are solving for the future of a company first and foremost, 
Like that's the problem that everyone should be focusing on. And anyone that is trying to sell anything to corporations at this point should be figuring out how they can be one dotted line away from helping companies solve that. Yep. Like, you know, we are, and you know, the real estate world, as it just, even in what you just said, there are so many layers and folds to the industry, which is like, it's huge just from square footage and remit, but it's pretty insular. Like there aren't people that really pop in and out of the real estate world with a lot of frequency. Most of us grow up in it and stay in it in some form or fashion. There's almost just like an acceptance of norms too, because yeah, what you said earlier about the agencies driving the workplace decisions of companies, I totally see that because I mean, use the, the hoteling model or like the open office model, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, what was that? Like a decade ago or something where everyone's just maybe even longer. Yeah. But it was, it was, it, like was the, it was really brought to prominence post 2008 when everyone was trying to shed as much OPEX as they could. Right. And, but that was kind of positioned to the, employee as like, hey, this is going to be this wide open collaborative work environment, but that you just ended up going to see everyone. You're going to talk to everyone. It's going to be great. I remember one of the funniest things was WeWork headquarters, not just WeWork member spaces. WeWork headquarters was open plan on steroids because there was no sound attenuation. Even if you had like the Bose noise canceling headphones on, you could still feel the noise around you. It was overwhelming. I've been in that place. Overwhelming. I walked in and I was just like, how does anybody get anything done in here? (laughs) Honestly, it was a miracle that any of us did. But but that also then goes to show just how talented and, you know, ambitious and like driven so many of the people that were in those four walls were. Yeah. But so the reason I bring I bring WeWork up is like, you know, I had said I was in charge of redesigning or like creating the strategy around redesigning our headquarters because we initially had that space designed for about 1100 people and uh 1600 were showing up on any given day which was just you know a great ace like shit show and so i in a past life i i was an expert in activity-based working it's something that i am very passionate about because it's very logical it's basically like you know setting up a, a, a workplace in the same way that you would set up a home in that there's a kitchen where you cook your food. There's a dining room where you eat your food. There's a living room where you sit on the couch and you watch TV. There's a bedroom where you sleep. There's a bathroom where you shower. There are ways to organize workplaces quite similarly Yeah. in terms of, you know, you need to, you need quiet, go to the library. You're not going to have an assigned seat, but there's plenty there that you don't need to worry about that classic meeting rooms, but having workshops, like workshop spaces and things that are more like, you know, pinnable spaces and whiteboards and stuff like that. And really just getting really clear about what are the different actual modes of working and solve for them. The problem is in most workplaces, we have maybe an assortment of four or five things, phone booths, meeting rooms, uh, huddle rooms, even though they're basically same, same desks and cafe. cafe cafe in the loosest of terms and and then we're just expected to sort of utilize it in all the ways that we mean to but back to you know your point about the open plan there are no walls there's no clear visual in in many cases and this is you know i'm speaking from like 2018 corinne uh very rarely are there sort of visual barriers that say okay i'm now in a new zone 
I, I now know that my mode of like my behaviors are now expected to shift. For instance, like if I were to walk into a study or a library space, I know my phone needs to be on silent. I know I can't be eating crunchy foods. I know that I can't be answering. Uh, I can't be having conversation. Like I am here to be quiet because everyone else signed up for that. And I would be then uh, exposed to sort of like the village mob, rightly so, for not complying with that, because those are the rules of the road in that kind of a space. But before, like workplaces that don't have those kind of environments, they're all designed for the most mega extroverts of all of us. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I am a gregarious and outspoken person, but for the most part, I'm on the pretty, I'm on that bubble of being an ambivert because I really need a lot of my alone time or I need like a lot of time to just decompress. Um, and by and large, not that many people in our population are mega, mega extroverts. Yeah. So most of the ways that environments are designed wear us down, which is yeah. why we're seeing so many people love working from home. Yeah, because you do have those purpose-built uh, spaces. You can be an introvert and get your stuff done. Yeah in your zone and yeah you know i guess maybe the only thing that's missing from that is the you know serendipitous water cooler talk or whatever when yeah it's like hey corinne did you catch that game last night <laughs> yeah like hey and what are you doing after work should we grab a beer you know like that's not nothing yeah um you can't pin the exactly. hopes of back to the office on you know people wanting to chit chat and get drinks after work you know yeah see that's and i, I think that's a really important point because What's been interesting as seeing that conversation specifically evolve is the pretty funny assumption that work is the only place that the majority of people are getting their socialization. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, and this is not to say like there are not people that don't have enough community and all of that kind of thing, but we should be treating those as edge cases, not the things that we design for. Yeah. But if you want to argue it's still important to us company that our people are aligned with our mission, know what we're working toward and we bring people together. So that way they can share, like they can be there yeah. together when we are impressing upon this kind of stuff. That's fair game. And I think that connection shouldn't be your input or your assumption. It should be a voluntary and just beneficial outcome. Yeah. I, and I agree ways in which you get to it can be super corporate it's okay yeah. to have yeah. it be a town hall it's okay to have it be like a mentorship program just make it make it some time that is like we're here to spend time together as a company here's the run of show here's what you need to be at here's what you can opt into and then the rest of the time is yours to design for yourself yeah yeah if you just want to come in and get work done and leave fine don't talk to anybody yeah. As long as, long, <laughs> as long as you're comfortable and you're getting your work done. I mean, yeah, I don't, think, be, I wonder, don't be rude, but you also don't yeah. have to talk to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a, um, an age bracketing component of this whole thing too, because I think that, and maybe this is just me, like maybe I'm aging myself here or timing myself out of like the actual current moment. But mm. when you're 22 years old to 25 years old, you're actually, I mean, you're probably excited to like meet new people at the office, especially if you're like moving to yeah. a new city and like you don't have a lot of people there and you're, I'm not saying you're like searching for friends, but it's just almost this natural maybe thing. Are. Maybe you are. And, and you know, your, your work friends that you go out to drinks with every Thursday is like, that's 
starts to become your crew. And I, I personally have a lot of lifelong friends from like my first job at JLL, right? They're just still, 100%. you know, you, like you professionally grow up with these people. So yeah, like it's like a new version of childhood friends in a way. Yeah, exactly. But I couldn't with confidence say that if I started a new job tomorrow, that I would be really planning on like meeting lifelong friends. You know what I mean? I would, yeah, yeah I would be, yeah. want, I want to get to know my colleagues and understand what makes them tick and all that stuff. But I'm not, we're not like, Hey, the wives and I should, we should go out to dinner, you know, right. like maybe, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Maybe right. in a certain, maybe takes, in a certain business too. Time. Yeah. If it's like a partnership, like a law firm and you just got to get to know each other because you're all bought into this. I don't know. I'm rambling, but I think that there's some level of like demographics that have to be, this just goes back to the multi-layered nature of all of this whole thing, which is yeah. there's no like touchstone for how this yeah. problem is going to be solved. No, there is like no magic potion. There is, there is nothing. It will take people who, even if it's not in their wheelhouse, it will take people who understand we're only going to solve this solve this through multidisciplinary strength so like i'm not going to know everything but i need to be connected with other people who know what i don't the sum needs to be greater than the parts basically is what i'm getting after i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna be the weatherman and like be able to solve everything but i know people that i can get on board with to say you fill a gap that i can't fill myself and you know build from there and i think anyone in a decision making position, whether it's internally facing or it's about a product that is going out to out to clients or out to uh, out to owners and things like that. Having more than just one voice and like that's classic product thinking. We need to start adopting more of that multidisciplinary and anti-siloed ways of working in order for us to really take serious strides forward. Um, but I think to your point about like the generational divides on this, I think you're right. I, and I think that there yes. are, obviously there are a number of different inputs and outputs for all of this. For older generations, the boomers, and I say that without it being <laughs> being malicious. Derogatory. Uh, yeah, it's not a derogatory <laughs> word, even though sometimes it can be. We have to think about it from, I think, a couple of different perspectives. One is the maturation of their career and like how invested are people in building and this is a broad generalization but boomers are approaching that retirement age and even gen x like we're seeing a lot of people in in gen x also retire early because they can and like hats off to them for being able to do so but their sort of eye on the exit strategy instead of the reconstruction is a challenge because... uh, i see what you're saying so that generation x behind the boomers they're thinking how do I avoid this problem as much as possible and like get out of my career? In, Maybe. In, I, mean, yeah. I, I think that it's, I think that it's a possibility. And I also think that that's the same for boomers that are still in the workforce. And I, I say this, let me put the caveat of decision makers, because what is coming is a bunch of failures and a bunch of testing. And that takes someone with a very strong amount of fortitude along with, a whole coalition of people around them that are on the same page of, yes, we're going to fuck up a lot, but that's okay because that means that we are moving towards in the direction of what will work. But that is a really challenging thing to get a lot of different people on board with. So that's, that is one challenge of like, what, where are people, where are decision makers on the course of their journey into the depths of their career or on their way out? 
I also think we have to consider how work has been digitized over the years. Everything is turning into a product. Everything is turning into a feature or some sort of digital application. Technological literacy also could be a contributing factor to older generations' disinterest with doing things different than let's just do three days in the office and two days at home. And I think the other thing too, you know, folks like us who are in the middle, I think we are probably the most amorphous, especially if there are young kids at home. And I mean, I live by myself and so I'm very spoiled. This place is completely mine. I don't even have a dog or a cat to bother me. But like parents being torn in one direction or another of like, yeah, I want to be around and see my kids and get that FaceTime. But also, holy shit, I have four calls that I can't have them like interrupt me on. And so it's this like really strong tugging between priorities for folks that are somewhere like 10, 15 years into their career. And then I'd say the younger set, the folks that are in their 20s and just coming out of college, you're right. Like they are craving those connections and building those friendships. And to your point, I have a number of people from CBRE that like, even if I don't keep in touch with them, we still call each other and know like know to pick up or whatever. Like that's a muscle memory that doesn't ever really get lost. And, you know, I have people like that from all stops on my career journey. One of the critical things I think about not having some form of office or workplace experience, I'm not saying that it needs to be you in a headquarters space. It can be as nimble as you're a remote first and every other month for the first week of that month, we are together in a certain location and going through like, yeah. you know, quarterly KPIs and big room planning. And then we have like, per, like, you know, social events and things like that. There are a lot of different ways to skin this cat. But I think the biggest thing that is getting lost and still has yet to be gained back is teaching people how to be in business. Uh, And I think that that's something that even us took or take for granted of we would just, especially at a place like JLL or a place like CBRE, it was just fed to us. Here's your job. Don't screw it up. And if you do, you know, there will be... (laughs) There'll there will be a, be a conversation. <laughs> there will be a consequence in a conversation, depending on who you're talking to. And, you know, you learn through that. And does that learning moment get lost because of a virtual environment or not? I don't know if we know enough yet. And how do we, how do we create mentorship? How do we, and also is mentorship even the right word? Um, I think mentorship gets thrown around as like another one of those, oh, well, we just need to go back in, into the office because that's where people get mentored. By and large, I actually think that might be a little bit of BS. I think that's that's like a, a an easy fallback yeah. because... Oh, we want you back in the mentors- office because you're going to miss out on all these career growth opportunities. Oh, Yeah. Like inherently, those career opportunities are not equitable. They are not yeah. always offered uh, across all demo- demographics of people who work at certain organizations. And it's not for lack of trying. It's just that's inherent bias. That's how that's human how, beings that's work. How, yeah, that's how it works. So you're telling me that if and, I come back into the office and I leverage all of these mentoring opportunities that I'm going to get my promotion? Because yeah, that's, right? that's what you're telling me, right? So are you going to put that in right. writing? Right. That didn't happen at my last job. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So there are a lot of these euphemisms that decision makers and even like thought leaders are using as a an appeal to either go back to the office or stay away from the office. But I am always wary of those being too reductive. Like, you know, we are human beings, we are social beings, we do need our community in some form or fashion. 
well, some get their connection from the office and others don't. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, like, you know, those mega introverts being in a, in that kind of like at scale shared space can be incredibly overwhelming and get in the way of their best capacity. So how do organizations set new standards that say, we ultimately believe in flexibility and we, tr- and we believe in trusting you. And these are the, these are the, this is the kit of parts we're going to be giving you to make you successful. You've got your tech stack, you've got your space stack, and then we've got your experience stack of like what kind of programming and, you know, feedback loops and stuff like that. We're going to be setting up to make sure that we are serving you, our customer in the right way. And we, we might not solve everything, but believe us when we say we believe in eliminating like these kinds of frictions for your experience. And then everything else we want to just get out of the way and let you do your thing. Yeah. So summing this whole conversation up, we can say that we didn't really solve anything on this call, but you've done an unbelievable job presenting the challenges that lie ahead for pretty much everybody. I'm good at, good at diagnosing. (laughs) I've always been very good at diagnosing. (laughs) Here, here's the problem. Just you go figure it out. But no, um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think like what you said earlier, which is like, it's like building a startup, right? There's going to be a lot of things that we fail at over the next several years. We're not going to know that we failed at them for some time, probably, but we're going to have to go through this pain in order to get to the promised land. And we don't even know what that is yet, but we're going to land on something and it's going to be the next thing. That might not be, that might not be the promised land forever. It'll be the fr- promised land where we can just, you know, stick a flag in the ground and I'll stop this colonialist, you know, (laughs) metaphor right now, but like somewhere that is certain. And from there, my only hope is that we do not become complacent because I don't want to say failures, but like one of the greatest under assumptions that I think our industry makes is once we land on certainty, we believe that that certainty exists forever. Yeah. And that's never true. Literally never, never, it's true. Yeah, I mean, we can go on a whole diatribe about that, but the real estate market, it exists in cycles. So it just can't yes. be true, right? Things change. So Exactly, yeah. All right, cool. So we've gotten to our final segment here, which is our rapid fire questions. I'm going to give you a Great. minute to answer five questions. They, they um, don't need to last the entire minute, but you know, Great. ponder and, and answer. And then uh, we'll wrap this up. And get you off to your uh, your next prediction and how <laughs> yes. somebody somebody else has a problem to solve. So, okay, question number one: What is your favorite animal and why? Um, I would say I'm going to cheat on this answer: elephants, because that's just a they are very they're just so peaceful to look at and just you know soulful in many ways. Um, but one of the jokes that I used to make at WeWork and was like the name of my like quasi product at WeWork was Mandarin Duck. And this was around the time that the Mandarin Duck was like swimming around in Central Park. And because, you know, everything looks super chill and smooth on the surface. And then underneath, it's just this like psychotic churning of like (laughs) work and effort and and chaos. Uh, So elephants, but I feel like I am personified most by a duck. Okay. (laughs) You are a duck. Okay. Besides the Mandarin duck in Central Park, if you could spend a day in somebody else's shoes, who would it be and why? Mm. You can't say Simon. No, I'm good. <laughs> I, I would need I would need to like sleep for seven years if it was Simon. Uh, <laughs> um, someone like Tim Cook. 
because he is someone who, at least from my vantage point, has mastered the player-coach relationship with his organization. Granted, Apple's got a lot of hiccups with return to office and future of work that they need to sort out, but that style of leadership, I think, is really unsung. Everyone loves a visionary leader. Everyone loves someone who's going to, like, rile them up and, like, think that, you know, they're going to save the world. Um, I... I tend to gravitate towards the folks that are learning their practice and figuring out how to then teach to the masses. Cool. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what's your favorite pizza topping? Pepperoni. Yeah. I mean, standard right down the middle. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm not going to, I'm not yeah, going to. We don't put stuff on stuff. our pizza in New York. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are purists. <laughs> um, okay. Um, question number four. Uh, when you were a kid, what career did you dream of having? If you uh, ha- had career dreams as a child. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was a big fan of the game of life. Uh, so spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I wanted to be a teacher. Always thought I was going to be a teacher. Some fashion I, you are. Right? I still have teacher vibes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have teacher <laughs> vibes for sure. Yep. Uh, all right. The last question here. Knowing what you know now, let's fast forward from when you were a child to when you were 18-year-old self. What uh, mm. advice would you give yourself? Um, the advice I would give to my 18-year-old self who was already going through some form of an existential crisis, <laughs> just keep going because the way things turn out are beyond whatever you'd be able to calculate in your 18-year-old brain. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to comprehend. Thank God. You are. Yeah. Thank God. Thank and thank God for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's been great, Corinne. Thanks for your time. Um, for our audience, if they wanted to find you, how would they do that? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is C O R I N N E. Very frequently gets mixed up. And then Murray, M U R R A Y. And then if you are a head of real estate or head of employee experience and you want to get involved with Purposeful Intent, you can go to purposefulintent.com and, uh, Hopefully we'll be coming to you, uh, coming to a city near you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Corinne. This has been great. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Occupier. See ya.